0: Welcome, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz and emerging from his hyperbaric chamber, the Reverend Aaron Upoff to join us once again for this very special episode. It's another conclave wherein we take your questions and just kind of talk about whatever we want, because it is our podcast after all. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you? (laughs) Doing well. Um, We'll take it in turn. Zellman, how is the frozen tundra in North Dakota?
1: Especially since I missed the last episode, I suppose I have to give an update. Things are pretty nice here and actually kind of on the, the warmer side of things, as warm as the frozen north can be, so I'm kind of half enjoying myself.
0: How warmed are you by the fact that the eastern side of the state is getting pummeled with snow as we record this, or has recently been pummeled with snow?
1: Well, I have to be a little bit more careful because being in the central, I tend to be kind of in the the, the path of all of this now. So, But it is what it is. They're, but they're getting quite a bit, and we'll just kind of see what happens over the
2: next week or so. so.
0: <laughs> Adam, how are things in the fort?
2: They're very good. Just snow flurries, not tundra-like conditions at all. All our best to our uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Nunavut there.
0: (laughs) And uh, Aaron, uh, how is the smog report in New Jersey?
3: (laughs) Uh, Smog's uh, mostly uh, gone away thanks to the rain that we had today. It was a very cold day, lots of torrential rain this afternoon. And uh, our yard looks like a swamp with a lot of downed branches from an ice storm we had a few weeks ago that still haven't been moved. Just sort of looks like Bastogne and Band of Brothers. Good image to describe the scene here, but uh, every time we have bad weather in New Jersey, I just pause, think to myself, at least I don't live in North Dakota.
0: (laughs) This is true. It is a natural reaction. Well, that's why I didn't get any reactions. Nobody can hear me. (laughs) You know, sometimes uh, technical difficulties occurring behind the scenes. Anyway, made a mob joke at Aaron's New Jersey expense, (laughs) and now we're moving on. Okay. (laughs) So... (laughs)
2: I I I laugh now. I laugh now, so it's fine.
0: (laughs) That's right, and I appreciate that. It's good for me to hear you (laughs) laugh. Um, It's better for me when you don't laugh, because I like people to just rest uncomfortably when I make (laughs) jokes. So, a Conclave episode's always fun. We never exactly know which direction it's going to go, but for our jumping off points, we are using questions from listeners. Again, if you do have questions you'd like us to tackle here at WordFit.ly, Head over to the Facebook page, send us an email, or check out the Facebook discussion group, facebook.com slash word fitly. We are on Twitter. You can check us out there. But we are, I guess, boomers at heart because we still are very Facebook heavy when it comes to social media. And we're pretty quick to respond. So.
2: One of us is a boomer at heart. It
0: just, but but it's only one of us at a time. It's never the same guy, right? (laughs) Much like much like marriages today, the way some people see them. Anyway, (laughs) so all right, Zelman, what is the first question that we are going to tackle today?
1: The first question is dealing with Gerhard. That is John Gerhard and the relationship which we have. To him now as modern Lutherans, because some of his views, especially regarding election, we in the Missouri Senate have come to reject. And so I suppose the way to break this question down in its most basic form is how do we deal with the fathers? How do we deal with those who have come before us, especially when they make statements that we no longer adhere to? So, gentlemen, how how do you want to tackle that?
2: Well, can you, can you clarify, Zalwin, what the issue is with election and Gerhard? Because I don't, I don't think everyone is as tuned in to the you know, 19th century election controversy as all of us are.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Basically, what's going on with Gerhard is Gerhard espouses a view of election, of how God actually chooses us to believe you know, that we would call intuitive fide, or in other words, in view of faith. This idea that God, in his foreknowledge, looked forward in time, saw those who would believe, and chose them on that basis. Okay. We rejected this idea in the Missouri Synod, and for good reason, because this still makes the reason why someone comes to faith dependent on man. But the struggle is, is what do we do with that in Gerhard? Because Gerhard is obviously someone who we deeply respect and who's very influential within... Uh, Lutheran Orthodoxy in general.
0: So my first question to you then, Zellwin, is Gerhard unique
1: in this view? Not at all. No. Many of the Lutheran Orthodox fathers held to this view, especially the later dogmaticians. Once you get down to like Quenstedt and those guys, a lot of them were espousing this view. So for the Missouri Synod to break with the Lutheran fathers meant actually breaking on a pretty big consensus.
0: And when we talk about the age of Lutheran orthodoxy, roughly what time period are we thinking of?
1: <laughs> roughly the period from 1580, with the closing of the Book of Concord, down to, I suppose you could argue 1750, with the death of Valentin Lucia, but the the heyday of Lutheran orthodoxy is probably, basically the, what would that be, the 17th century, right? The 1600s. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, right. yeah definitely, right.
2: So we, we break with Lutheran Orthodoxy. This is generally an unusual thing for the Missouri Synod to do because it was sort of uniquely devoted to Lutheran Orthodoxy among American Lutheran church bodies. But in the question of election, which became a controversy, really originated within the Missouri Synod, the antagonist of CFW Walther was a professor of the Norwegian Synod at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis but was not himself a Norwegian, F.A. Schmidt. Little known fact, he was actually one of the guys pertaining to our last episode who was there creating you know, linkages between immigrant synods and the Tennessee synod folks in, in Missouri who spoke English. Schmidt <laughs> objects to Walther's teaching on election, saying that it's solely in view of God's will and Christ's merit, and upholds this Lutheran Orthodox position, capital O Orthodox, denoting the time period Zalwin talked about. And this then spreads between a bunch of synods. The debate it ends up uh, significantly altering, if not in some sense destroying, the synodical conference. Why? Why did we reject it? I mean, Zalwin, I I think you got to the basic issue, the basic question, anyway. Uh-huh which is how do we relate to the fathers? Why did we reject the fathers? What, what did we say instead? Well, we had to basically say that
1: what was going on and what the fathers were saying was not actually in line with Scripture. And so even though we, like you said, deeply respected the, the Orthodox fathers and you know listened to them on lots of different points, on this one point we had to say, no, this is not right, because even the fathers can err. <laughs> Right. Even they can they can just because this is the period of Lutheran orthodoxy doesn't mean that this was the golden age of of doctrine. They still had their errors that they didn't quite Mm -hmm. work through.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. And 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 Walther writes these really interesting. He writes one especially long essay towards the end of his life about why we draw our doctrine from Scripture and not from the fathers. Right how would we distinguish between the fathers and a creed or a confession, which are also, you know, things from the past, like the father's teachings? What's, what's the difference between a confessional statement and the writings of the fathers?
0: And how we approach confessional statements as as Lutherans. Right.
2: right. Sure. I mean, that's, that's, that's for anybody, but go ahead, Z. Well, I mean, I think the way
1: to deal with this question is because, you, yes, when we deal with a confessional statement, especially when we deal with the creeds, we are still dealing with the productions of the church. And we, we obviously hold those up in very high esteem as being, you know, the the hallmarks of orthodoxy. And this is what it means to be an orthodox Christian, especially because it is used across the board. You know, it is truly acumenical. Right. right. But at the same time, I mean, I think it's worth saying that we uphold the creeds because they, they say the truth but we don't uphold them as if they were scripture. They've proven themselves over time, and, you know, we hold to them for that reason. But if for some reason we were to discover that there was something lacking in them, not saying that we will, but if we did, we should actually be willing to say, no, this isn't quite right,
0: right? And I think this particular issue, though, with Gerhardt and election in view of faith is a sticking point for us for a couple of reasons. One, how we understand fellowship, wherein it's not simply fellowship based upon our view of the Lord's Supper, but fellowship based upon our view of all essential doctrines. And election is wrapped up with justification, things like that. Right. right. So we're talking about a teacher that we hold in high regard, but on a major issue departs from us. And nevertheless, he is published in new volumes uh, from our publishing house, things like that. And perhaps people see a bit of a disconnect there that they perhaps feel that maybe we should only be pu- publishing people that we agree in every point with. But this is one of the things that we point out with a lot on Word Fitly Spoken is that when it comes to doing historical theology, it's never that cut and dry. Right. That it is kind it is a fact that there are differences between us and the age of Lutheran Orthodoxy. And we can't escape that. That the church is always battling with error, and that you will find varying opinions um, in any age of the church. And I think even down to the, the the true church fathers, you you actually do find variants of opinions with regard to certain doctrines. Some right. people would disagree with that, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of easy to, to see that, which is just a cursory reading. Right. And so I understand the tension. But to say that, for example, we confess the Book of Concord is free from error and we confess it quia and all that is not to say that there weren't tensions after that. And people come into this issue when, with the Bible, too, right, with things like Galatians and the Jerusalem Council. It's as if some people cannot accept that the church is still full of tensions and sinners and disagreements even after the church has spoken on an issue. Right, right. And and so that's what you come up here with Gerhard. But the interesting thing with Gerhard is he is espousing these views post-formula, right? Right. Right. And so our understanding of, of these issues are already codified within the Book of Concord, and yet he is free to move to a position that we would see as at odds with the confessions. Do you have any comment on that, Zellman?
1: Well, and this is something that I think is actually kind of interesting, that when we deal with these Opinions, or whatever you want to call them that crop up in the age of orthodoxy and afterwards, they see themselves as being entirely confessional.
0: Absolutely, right.
1: And so what we're dealing with is, you know, how do we actually approach the the confessions? And what do you do when these people who argue for what we would see as variant positions still believe themselves to be fully within the bounds of the confessions? You know, what does it mean (laughs) to be confessional?
2: Right, right,
1: right. And I'm not calling for some kind of, you know, insofar as position or whatever. I'm just saying to say quia, you know, I, be- I confess the Book of Concord quia is not, as you say, so cut and dried as we might like it to be. We actually right. have to take the time to break that down to determine what that
0: means. So I think a good example here we find in the early days of the Senate How did they handle doctrinal disputes? For example, they're at official synodical business meetings, and a Pastor Schmidt or whoever gets up and begins espousing erroneous doctrines. What would they do? Would they stick to the agenda for the day because they have so much business to get through and so many speeches? (laughs) What would they do?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, they, in the case of Schieffer Decker, who was a district president, espousing what they called kiliasm, we would call it. Some kind of millennialism, they stopped everything and debated the issue for i think two and a half three days. He did not change his doctrine and so they asked him to leave the Senate then and there that's that we we actually know how they handled these things
0: absolutely and it's it's amazing how different things are today and how different they've been for a long time and I think we could debate whether or not that's the best way to handle it, but it is very telling, yeah how seriously our forefathers took these issues or theological issues anyway.
1: Right. No, that's, that's actually a really great point because I think when you approach a question of like, you know, how okay. do we deal with Gerhard and we re, rejecting Gerhard or rejecting Lutheran orthodoxy on this one point, we might be accused of some kind of flippancy as if the, the early Missourians just kind of said, well, we don't like this. And so forget this, we right. don't want anything to do with right. it. No, right. they they were very, very serious in what they did, and they took it very, very seriously. And so we should be doing the same, not just to say, oh, well, Gerhardt got this wrong, so let's never read Gerhardt again, but rather just say, well, Gerhardt struggled with these things, but we have to struggle with how he came to that position and understand why he says those things so that we're able to make that informed pronouncement and actually break with the, the fathers on this point. Don't just do it because you don't like it or because you want to be trendy or cool and Mm. be some kind of, you know, Eastern Coptic something or the other because you're the only one
0: around. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, paging Eastern right Lutherans, whatever that is.
1: Exactly. You know, so just really be serious and really take the time is really, I think, the point that we need to make. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great that's a great way to think about it because I think a lot of times when people think about positions from the past that they don't understand or with which they reflexively disagree, they just sort of dismiss it. Right. right. And this this does concern some of the things that we've been talking about, not only with the forgotten era, but thinking about the past at all. If you are going to hear about something from the past and just dismiss it out of hand to begin with that is as irresponsible theologically as simply accepting something because it's from the past. Great point. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly on,
1: on point. We, we don't want to also say the consensus of the fathers as if, well, even as if Lutheran orthodoxy was this monolithic thing too, they might've been monolithic on, you know, this election question, but to be honest, there were all kinds of debates that went on. I mean, they wrote, all kinds of pages of theology during that period. So,
2: well, and I mean, I mean, you know, speaking of that period, you know, obligatory reminder that phrases such as the consensus of the first five centuries were invented by (laughs) anti-confessional people trying to get around having to be theologically specific. Citing the past as a monolithic authority is as stupid as citing the future as a monolithic authority. It allows you to not have to deal with what the Bible says. And one of the things that we are constantly commending about the early Missouri Synod is that they were actually serious about what the Bible said and wanted to take the time to know.
1: Paging Calixtus. Is that what we're going yeah, for? Yeah, Calixtus. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. But see, the re they are their being so serious is the reason why their manners and their their conduct and their approaches to dealing with issues are so different from ours. Right. Their ethics are different because they at least sought to be formed by what the Bible said. They weren't as interested in sloganeerings or pristination or things like that. They were interested in what the truth was from the source. How can we arrive at that? That's how they approach their debates. And I think that is a very important thing for us to learn. As you mentioned, you know, we we stress this, all the time. We're always tempted to go off into our camps. And the way things are organized today, we can basically do that even under the same synodical umbrella. And this would apply to Wells or any of the other synods, any denomination really. We're Nowadays, we can go and hide in our camps and be virtually untouched. The early Missouri fathers were not going to let that happen. And they were going to deal with it in a rather public way through disputations which is the most honest way to deal with this all right we got to take a quick break we'll be right back with more word fitly Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to a Word Fitly Spoken Conclave. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, Aaron Upoff, and Adam Kuntz talking listener questions. Well, that was a fun discussion last segment, despite some technical hiccups here and there. So, Zelwyn, what's our next question?
1: Our next question is a fairly broad one, but I think it's going to generate a lot of discussion. And that is How did Vatican II affect the LCMS? Vatican 2 of course referring to the second Vatican council the most recent of the Roman Catholic councils so who wants to take that one Aaron you've been kind of quiet so
3: sure i'm actually just here so we can drive in the carpool lane that's the only reason i'm on the show tonight <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i i think of vatican 2 it's even though it's a different confession a different church body it's like a plague it hits all sides on the battlefield and It was wide ranging in its effects for not just Roman Catholics, but everybody who is sort of in that uh, sphere of influence, which I guess you could probably say includes all Western Christian churches, Protestant or otherwise. But yeah, its effects have definitely hit us as well, Uh, particularly, I think probably most visibly to everybody would be on Sunday morning, that is in the liturgy and how the service is conducted, what goes on there, the involvement of laity inside of the service I know we talked kind of offline here about anthropology and how man is viewed and and family and everything that goes out of that, ecumenism, the list goes on. But no, the spirit of Vatican II, also known as Lucifer, is a (laughs) permeate.
2: This podcast apparently does not stand Vatican II
0: at all.
3: (laughs) We can't even, no.
0: <laughs> it's not that we want the latin mass back but you know yeah, right. we want the altars yeah. pushed back in and, and we want karen gone <laughs> lingua franca is great <laughs> but yeah karen needs to go
2: <laughs>
0: like nothing good quote-unquote good from the vatican council wasn't available in other churches post schism in other parts of, of the world as you know and mainly we're just thinking of the common language a language people can understand every major player in vatican II is suspicious Name me one, who isn't? I'll wait <laughs>
1: well, there goes the rest of the podcast but
2: it it i mean it, it all it honestly also applies to the Eastern Orthodox churches it, the one that I know the most about that was involved in Vatican Two is Alexander Schmemann, who himself you know he he wrote on a wide variety of topics, but was in his own way rather theologically revisionist within his own terms. I mean, this is kind of orthodox inside baseball. But I mean, the, the dynamic is always the same. It's 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 a certain peace treaty with the spirit of modernity.
0: Well, and, and there is a spirit of ecumenism that starts to infect certain orthodox bodies in the 50s and 60s. Right. And... It's interesting to see how that's developed. I think that they have largely rejected that in many corners, uh, although there are cases where that spirit is very much alive, and it's it's almost church body to or you know Orthodox, what whatever you want to call it, Orthodox Church to Orthodox Church, not congregation, but I'm thinking actual national body. That, but anyway, they have the same problem that Protestantism does. It, at the time of Vatican II, there are very influential teachers who are obsessed with ecumenism. And ecumenism is one of the signs of the end of the age.
3: No lies <laughs> detected.
0: Paging Carl, Paging Carl McIntyre. <laughs> but, you know, I, and, I, and I think that we can make jokes about the three-year lectionary, and we should, and we can, uh, but we can, and we can make jokes about the altars coming out But it's the anthropological thing that is more concerning and the role of even genders and the role of who can serve in churches, as Aaron mentioned, and the ecumenical bend to it that is arguably the most deceitful and the most damaging outcome of Vatican II. Because from Rome's perspective or from a faithful Roman Catholic, they have seen their theology so watered down. And from a Protestant perspective, or in the case of, of certain Orthodox, we have seen our theologies infected and influenced by what came out of Vatican II. And so... It's just bad all around, fam. I don't really know what to—I mean, I don't really— it's hard for me to put a positive spin on this, or a best construction. too far afield,
3: I, I have something that kind of throws back to our first section. I mean, you've always had, at least in recent history, churches wanting to come together in ecumenism or whatever they call it at the cost of their doctrinal integrity. That's, that's something that predates Vatican II, but you see it certainly in earnest during and afterward— And I can think of uh, an example like the ELCA when it was formed in the 1980s included church bodies that historically were on opposite sides of the Intuitu Fide controversy. And from the best of what I've read or heard, uh, that was not even a topic of discussion. They didn't even have to hammer that out. I think they just sort of ignored it and pretended it didn't exist because it was unity at all costs.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I guess I I would say that underneath any of the specifics that we could talk about, and I think especially we should discuss the liturgy because that is the most visible manifestation of the Second Vatican Council's influence on Lutheranism, but underneath it in Roman Catholicism and underneath it in any church body that sort of gets watered down or, or weakens on its own confession in the course of the 20th century is generally a prior capitulation to historical criticism of the Bible. And that happened in Roman Catholicism in the 1940s with the papal encyclical Divino Afflante Spiritu. And that really prepares the way for the Second Vatican Council in the sense that once the Bible is no longer inerrant, the nature of doctrine within a church, the nature of the revelation of Christ's truth does not have any kind of the same weight that it does when you are maintaining that you possess divine revelation in scripture and it happens
0: to rome the same way it has happened to nearly every other body it begins with it begins with the academics particularly germans as far as rome is concerned although there are others and and so supposed men of learning begin to espouse things it becomes in vogue a church that becomes obsessed with what is new and novel adopts it so as not to appear passe or heaven forbid fundamentalist in some way and right. and then it's officially adopted by a papal encyclical. Right. Uh, you know, that's the Cliff's notes version of it, but that's how it happens. And so you can see that time and time again though in other in other denominations and you you don't you don't see it in the initial
2: generation that adopts these things or even the generation afterward oh sure sure yeah but they're operating on so much theological and ecclesial capital from prior generations you see it generations down the line when everyone fi- begins to figure out that nothing really matters the way it did for their grandparents it's sort of meaningless and the churches begin to collapse and you've seen that totally with the Roman Catholic Church, especially in Europe and and the United States. And you've definitely seen it with the ELCA. Once once Christianity is no longer an absolute revelation of divine truth, it simply does not retain the hold on human beings that it that it actually should have. And so that capitulation always comes before there are practical effects in church life that just reinforce the meaninglessness.
0: Right. And basically what we're saying is that Vatican II is a Masonic plot. So, all right, moving on, let's, let's... um a second here. (laughs) You got something you want to say? There's a.
3: I I
1: have a question maybe to kind of steer this a little bit, because we're going to be talking about the liturgical questions, especially because like you said, that's, that's where it kind of manifests itself the best. But as we all know, and this is maybe a question I'm throwing out to you guys just to kind of see where you want to go with it. Liturgical questions had been in vogue in the Missouri Synod since the the influence of the liturg- liturgical movement in the early 20th century. How does that all affect this then? So you have already an interest in liturgical questions and and kind of renovating liturgical practices. Does that kind of set up the way towards being influenced then by Vatican
2: II, or is it? I don't know. How do, how do they interact with each other? Let me let me just say this: is that when we went, we have always been interested in liturgy, simply because it has always been part of our heritage, at least synodically, not the case for all American Lutherans. But as we pointed out in the last episode, the common service, the the really the English speaking heritage of Lutheranism in America, was forged almost jointly by a variety of different Lutheran bodies. That and the liturgical movement, capital L, capital M in the Roman Catholic Church, are not the same thing as the liturgical influence of Vatican II. The way I would describe it is that like biblical criticism, there is a desire for some improvement in our understanding of the Bible or the conduct of the Sunday morning service or whatever it might be, because of the Roman Catholic church's size and weight in every realm of Christian life for every church, anything they do is going to influence the direction of every other church body, whether that church wanted that influence in that direction or not. So I think you don't want to equate Vatican II with interest in liturgics per se, not even in the Missouri Synod. But when it happens, it cannot help having enormous influence on what occurs after Vatican II. I mean, we can, you know, I, I, I know that Aaron knows a lot about LBW. I mean, I don't think Lutheran Book of Worship or Lutheran Worship have anything like the shape they do if Vatican II doesn't occur.
0: A couple of things are going on with the liturgy, and a couple of things need to be cleared up with regard to Lutheranism. Because you're right, there's the proper historical term, liturgical movement. There's also the terms high church and low church, which we apply to our churches in a Missouri Synod context often, but that's not historically correct. Right. That properly belongs to an Anglican debate. And so that the Lutheran church, this division between high church and low church is not historically applicable to us. Nevertheless, You have a couple of things going on with liturgics in general, and it certainly affects confessional Lutherans. The great advantage and also the great danger and the caution that I would give when discussing liturgics is this. Part of an attempt at finding right liturgical worship is a quest for relevancy and legitimacy, and that cuts both ways. We would say we want to... Retain the historic liturgy. The best answer we give is because it's ordered by the Bible, and and keeps you know it's kind of like a fence. It keeps us in check, even if say the sermon is heretical or something. But for many people too, it is a quest for legitimacy. If we can hold on to the old things, then we are connected to the original church, and therefore we are legitimate. Now, the other aspect of legitimacy, though, is what does the largest Christian church in the world do? And that would be the Roman Catholic Church. And so for many, they would see what Rome did with their Reforms during the Second Vatican Council and say, ah, here is legitimate liturgy. This is how we can become legitimate by adopting new measures, or excuse me, new liturgies, new, new, new forms of worship, right? So I think that that cuts both ways, but I think the caution is the same there. As, as as we said in the first segment, just because something is old or an author is old doesn't necessarily make them correct. Well, just because a particular liturgical flourish is old does not necessarily make it the best thing. And we would certainly say just because something is new and adopted by um, a bishop who claims to be the head of a billion people on earth, just because he gives it the thumbs up doesn't mean that it's good either. And, and so legitimacy must come from something other than form alone. It must come from ultimately from confession and a confession of doctrine. Not that the two are not related, but that is just a caution there because we do see both things happening. And you see it more starkly today in Rome and in Lutheranism where the dividing lines are so strong. The very conservative liturgical types on one side and the very, uh, what would you say, loose, non-liturgical types on the other. And the battle lines are very similar in both both groups, I would say. Do you think that's a fair perspective?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I, and I think one reason that high church and low church have slipped into our parlance in Lutheranism is because the insight in Anglicanism is actually, I think, finally true that One's liturgical behavior w- will affect and does express one's theology at least eventually if not right immediately.
0: right, but it's I mean it's kind of funny in the case of the Anglicans because Anglo-catholic can mean someone who's borderline conservative Roman Catholic or just right. total liberal with a censure right. you know, so so, I mean, so it doesn't right. it, it I mean I hear it and I and I hear the argument. But I don't I mean is it even true even in the case of the Missouri Senate, 40 years ago the high church types were the leftists and now it's 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 flip-flopped it's they they're seen as the conservatives and it they largely are the conservatives
2: yeah i mean I, I, I we we have to be clear that for the lutheran church as for any biblical church doctrine is constitutive of the church not degree of ceremony and that is why high church and low church really kind of eviscerate the Lutheran church because then we end up debating ceremony whereas theologically what's underneath the ceremonial difference is very often a doctrinal difference and that's what yeah. really needs to be discussed.
0: Right, absolutely. Do you think it's fair to describe the Missouri Synod as broad church?
2: I I don't I don't think so because the term In its origin, and I I hope I'm not being, uh, you know, too particular about this, but in its origin, broad church is everyone in an Anglican church who is simply going along to get along and is sort of indifferent.
0: Right. And that's kind of why I asked the question, if we're importing these Anglican terms here and applying them to us, do we want to take the third term, which is we very rarely use? And apply it. So, yeah, I think that that's a fair point. It's, it's, it's not a, a matter of, of indifference. And that's right. again, goes back to what I'm saying. I think the lines, the battle, I don't want to say battle line, but the divining line is at least more stark today than it has been in some time. So, Aaron, you had something you wanted to say about, about Vatican II and the family. Yeah.
3: And I'm not sure. I mean, like I said, it's it's hard to, to really pinpoint and say it's always causation, you know, from, from this, that or the other. But like that you see the ideas of family have certainly changed over the last 50 years where, you know, I think there's I saw I saw a meme once where it was like your great grandmother and she has like eight kids running around your grandmother. There's four, your, your mother, two, and then you. And it's like you holding the cat or something.
0: I like that you cleaned that meme up for the for the podcast.
3: Well, you know, we, we're a family family friendly show, so yeah, no. But you see this this understanding of of who we are as human beings, made in God's image, and and what that looks like according to His created order, well, the order of creation, you know. And I think that it's it's hard to to deny that we get much of are moving away from our historical biblical understanding of that. Again, like Adam said from Rome, it's just so big you have to pay attention or or it it affects you. A big boat goes by, a little boat in the water, the little boat's going to rock.
0: And to be fair to Vatican too, I think a lot of Protestantism and the family's problems actually start probably in the 30s with the Lambeth Conference and the Anglicans a little bit before that. I think
3: we just need to do an episode on Anglicanism's influence in Lutheranism.
0: Right, paging TLH. Well, I mean, here I am, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, we could do Presbyterian's Influence. It'd be a short episode, you know, but we could try it.
2: Yeah, and it's, it would mostly be like, well, we did in 2
0: Fide because it sounded like. <laughs> exactly, we we covered it in segment one. <laughs> right.
3: Well, yeah. I'm over here rocking the Psalter hymns on Sunday morning, so That's there you right.
0: go. God bless you for that. So what does the Church of Rome then look like today? Is it the fault of Vatican II that Rome is in its current state? Zellman, what do you think?
2: Oh,
1: that's, I don't, I mean, I would certainly say that there's an influence there. It'd be difficult to say that there was nothing involved, especially with John Paul II and his liberalizing influence and a lot of the ideas coming into Rome.
0: Well, no, you're saying liberalizing influence. Give me a, a, a good example of him bringing some some bad religious influence into the church what would be a a very concrete example of that
1: oh i don't know is kissing a quran a pretty good example or
0: that would be one that would be a big (laughs) one
1: i mean just and this idea i mean i don't remember all the details about where it comes into rome but this certainly begins to take prominence that you know the the seeking unbeliever who never right who who does it genuinely is somehow closer to god than I don't know,
2: Lutheranism. Yeah, the, but. the anonymous Christian. I mean <laughs> I mean I, I, I love when people get angry about stuff that Francis says. I mean Francis basically is just saying in media savvy terms the stuff that is in the catechism of the Catholic Church. Right.
0: Right. I mean they, they say that by striving through by being essentially being faithful to your religion, some may gain heaven. Right. Uh, apart from explicit faith in christ right now they won't quite say apart from christ they'll basically say christ lets them like gives them his grace unbeknownst to them yeah, he's got at the end of got time. A gate yeah. to get into the you know. yeah yeah he's got some mulligans
1: he can give you right now yeah. hold on a second when did we get to lewis and narnia uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, back to oh no.
0: Oh snap. It's, it's, it's like actually, and one basketball all of a sudden. Here.
2: Actually destroy the podcast, so let's not discuss. <laughs>
0: That's right. Let's not discuss CS Lewis is writing or or his friends, his lady oh, yeah. friends, okay? Let's <laughs> not discuss that.
3: Agreed. It, it it is great though that in the face of you know kissing the Quran and, and washing the feet of Muslims or whatever, that the anathemas of Trent still stand on the books. So you know everybody else gets in, but
0: the Lutherans. That's right, yeah, you know. Which that's fine. We we tend to not get along when we share cramped spaces with people, anyway. So <laughs> probably for the best. Well, all right, guys. We've got to take another break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Word Fitly Conclave. Willie Grills, Ellen Heidi, Adam Kuntz, and Aaron Uphoff, talking about anything and everything that listeners want us to talk about. Well, we have a couple more things with Vatican II to clear up. Aaron, tell us a little bit then about how Vatican II influenced our, let's say, worship practices, liturgy, those sorts of things, things within the service and within the administration of the church.
3: Sure. Well, I've heard before, I think the, the Novus Ordo, the new order of the Roman liturgy came out in 1969, that it wasn't formally a part of Vatican II per se, but you know, came out of the same, same force, same trajectory of what Vatican II was and was on. And uh, the changes that they made have largely found their way into our church. Like, of course, we already spoke the common language of the people or whatever, but the language the lower language I guess moving away from the Jacobian English which um, our Missouri listeners will know from TLH or Divine Service Three
0: as if I ever moved away from it here right at right yeah, yeah go on
3: right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah you know, the updated language for the liturgy I think much more lay participation in the service lay readers lay distributors of communion which I don't know I might be wrong on this I mean did we did we have elders help distribute communion in Missourian churches before all of this uh, can someone answer? Generally
0: that? not. Generally no. not. No, yeah. no. And it's 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 interesting. It's it's uh, you had even pastors who didn't commune themselves and waited until winkles in okay. certain regions. Pastors, of course, typically commune themselves.
3: And now we have pastors that do commune themselves, but won't commune at Winkles. But that's another story.
0: But, well, right? It's interesting, <laughs> and I, and it, how regionally that changed. And you you see that anecdotally as you travel around and look at church records and diaries and things like that. You learn a lot by reading old pastors' diaries. And that sounds creepier, but I mean it to be as wholesome as I can. <laughs> You really do learn a lot.
3: <laughs> well, yeah. I guess I was gonna say, and you know, at first I was gonna say you have women participating in the service, but like I said, it wasn't just you know women; it was men and women, lay lay people in general, that started, and you know, soon the door opened, and now you have girls doing pretty much everything except for consecrating, even in I hate to say it, some Missourian churches. And <laughs> don't even press me on the consecration part, but that's that's just a too black pill for this episode. <laughs> but it happened Yeah, but no, you have like, uh, and I mean, just like the, I something that's maybe not Vatican II per se, but like I just think the of the the liturgy trying to be more musical, and so what do they have? They have these services that a lot of times are unsingable, you know, unless it's like a choir at Valpo, or they're singable and they're they're as bad as like a jingle for a commercial on television.
0: Well, I, I think you make a great point that some of these more opulent unsingable ones, the more modern mm-hmm. ones. Are actually of the same spirit as the folk mass, Bec- because it's it's just it's just innovation for innovation's right, sake. Sometimes. Right?
3: I mean, and and I mean, it's atrocious. Let's just be honest. I like the thank the Lord from Divine Service Two and Alice sounds like you're at a magical. I mean, it's but that that's sort <laughs> of you know. I mean, l- l- we can all at least agree this. The worst thing that came out of Vatican II that came into our churches was the passing of the peace and the bro hugs in the middle of the service. Raise your hand if you can do without that.
0: <laughs> it's true. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I hesitated myself, but yeah, it did. It, it is a product of that era in Catholicism, and people go, "But wait, we had the kiss of peace in uh, in the in the New Testament, and you did, but you're not kissing each other, and it would be weird in this country to do it <laughs> because we're all good of good English stock, and we don't do that kind of thing."
3: one and I get nervous, but yeah, go on.
0: Right. Well, I remember, you know, when I was serving in Latin America, I, you, they did that. And it was a typical greeting when you met someone, but Lutheranism filtered through Vatican II, filtered through the mission field, ended up being the, the passing of the peace. Plus, now I've got a handshake, bro hug, and kiss somebody. And, it you know, it's just not my thing. Yeah, so uh, the kiss of peace, the ancient kiss of peace, is rather culturally different from our fist bump, and awkward side hug that you have on certain Sunday yeah, I mornings.
3: Think there's a general irreverence or a casualness about Sunday morning that did not exist yeah. before 50 years ago.
0: Right. There are things, though, like, here's the thing. Greeting one another is good, and you should do that, say, in the narthex, outside of the sanctuary before or after church. A firm handshake is essential to being a, a good human, and so you must you must have that. But must we force it upon people as part of the liturgy? I think that's a fair question. And I'm not coming down on people who have that custom. That's just one of the things that have come in and people, people tend to like it. But it is, it is another case of sort of this irreverency or kind of a forced fellowship in a way. Right It's like a play date for grown-ups, you know you don't want to shake each other's hands afterwards, but we're going to do it here because you' you're within the three pew radius from me, so I have to shake your hand because we just made awkward <laughs> eye contact, so now we have to do it. And again, it's good to have peace with one another, but we can have peace without making it a liturgical flourish, right? I notice everybody's going quiet. Aaron threw me the ball. I ran with it. And now Adam and Zell are being quiet. That's because they love it. <laughs> Zell, you might not know it, but he's a big hugger. He's a bear hugger, you know, and he actually does both uh, cheeks when he kisses you, just beards you up one side and down the other. That's Zell He's just a big cuddly monster. Well, is What he is.
1: According to previous episodes, I'm either a bear worshiper or an actual bear. So I'm not really
0: sure which. Well, you're splitting hairs now. <laughs>
3: I, I don't know if, if you're get an episode out of this, but just, I mean, we're all here in our mid-30s, except for Willie, who may or may not be 70. <laughs> He's is ancient of
1: days, but anyway.
3: It, it's not just, it's not an anomaly that us and this podcast or a lot of our other friends, colleagues of our generation... Uh, have a hankering for for things before it's you know i mean i don't really know how else to say like we don't like the changes most of them that came out of the last 50 years either in general or or us in particular
2: i think i think it's because we live with the consequences of things right so this applies in secular politics with something like abortion being described as a choice that 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 feels very differently if you If you were an unborn child, potentially subject to abortion versus somebody who gets to make choices just so with the liturgy ideas about and and the connection between the Novus Ordo in 1969 and the Second Vatican Council is that the, the constitution on the sacred liturgy that comes out of Vatican II describes the liturgy primarily as the people's work, which if you are a confessional Lutheran, it is flatly wrong. The liturgy is the delivery of God's divine gifts through his appointed ministers, which is why pastors read the lessons, they preached the sermons uniquely, yeah. they distributed communion uniquely, because it is a delivery through the holy mini- the office of the holy ministry of Christ's things for his people.
0: And and if I may if I if I may make a point here, because Aaron mentioned that we are hungering for the things the way they used to be. And In the case of pretty much everyone here, this is not nostalgia, because nostalgia is idolatry. We want to avoid nostalgia. We all like it. We all like the member berries and things like that, but it's not nostalgia because it's not something we're raised in. We are homesick for a country that we've never been to, and it isn't nostalgia. It is a desire to recover a better way, a way that we were not raised in and a way that was not passed down to us a way that we ourselves have to recover from a broken generation and so or a broken couple of generations a generation that broke itself off from the better things that were passed down to us
3: mm-hmm. and it's not just liturgy it goes far far beyond that too
0: absolutely it's 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 what we confess and it's not just yeah, you're right. It's not just liturgy. It's not just the external. It's the ethics that go with it and the underlying theology behind it. The, the way we under the biblical understanding of the family, of fathers and mothers, the duties of children, the duties of pastors, the duties of everyone in their particular spheres is something that we have to recover that God has called us to recover because what we are recovering is nothing less than what God has called us to do in his own word. So it isn't just going back to the good old days because, well, you know, 50 years ago our churches were bigger, or 50 years ago we had um, Walter League and look at all these utes here and things like that. It was it was simply because these things supported God's things and affirmed God's things, and they enabled us to carry on God's teaching and to pass on God's teaching and to and to raise children that would stay in the faith or to. Govern our homes in a godly in a godly fashion. Mm -hmm. So we are we are recovering. We are not merely remembering fondly the good old days because we never frankly had the good old days. Right. You know we are bringing new days that are good because we never had them before.
3: We we want to recover a birthright that was taken from us.
0: Amen. Uh, Any other last words about Vatican II? Zell, when you're being quiet over there, Bear God, what's up?
1: No, I'm, I'm just kind of going along. So we'll just, I think we should move on to maybe our last listener question, if that's all right with you guys.
2: Okay. Yeah, 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 that sounds good.
1: Okay. Well, the last question that we have from our listeners, we're not going to have a whole lot of time to go into full depth and maybe it's something worth covering in a full episode, but a listener is asking about the, the brief, History of how we got how Christianity got the doctrine of the rapture basically a question of dispensationalism and how that came about. So Willie, I know this is your this is your wheelhouse, but how do you want to tackle it?
0: I like that obscure American 19th century stuff is my wheelhouse <laughs> and uh, that, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, John Moses Browning still the greatest firearms designer, and he overlaps in that period a little bit, too, so I can take it. It's not all bad in the 19th century, but it's mostly bad. So, yeah, so the question is about the rapture, and basically what, what the question means is the secret rapture, and in particular the way it's espoused today, whereby the church is taken up, taken away from the world before a time of great tribulation that will— be several years long, and then culminate in the end of the world. But to understand the rapture, you have to understand the system that eventually adopts it, and that's dispensationalism. The idea that God governed the world in different ways and manners throughout history, and that that affects, for instance, his relationship to a national Israel, for example, And that basically comes from John Nelson Darby, who strongly influences the Plymouth Brethren, excuse me, in Ireland and England in the 1830s. They will say that, oh no, dispensationalism goes back to Irenaeus or Augustine or Joaquin de Fiore, but it's, yeah. I mean, you really have to stretch to make them dispensationalists, uh, frankly. But this system adopts the rapture as an understanding and it basically says that we're in this nearly this final dispensation and that part of that is that God will pluck the church out of it and in the last days everything becomes horrible and national Israel is a big part of it and it's it's very complicated. But right. in short, I'll explain it this way, because we really will do a we'll do a whole episode on this later on because it requires a lot of time to unpack. The rapture itself, you could most popularly attribute it to uh, the Millerites, which were a sect in the 1840s who believed that the rapture, the secret rapture, was coming, that the church was going to be taken away before a great time of of trial and judgment. And so the followers sold all of their belongings. Miller told them, hey, the world's going to end on this date. And they went up on their rooftops and waited for the world to end. And the world obviously didn't come to an end. So he said, okay, forgot to carry the one here. Let me just get around, reconfigure the date. Again, it doesn't happen. Eventually, people become disillusioned. But the idea of the secret rapture coming is what caught on in the popular zeitgeist. And so it becomes coupled with dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a very novel theory of the world. In many ways, it's very fantastical. But it comes with a lot of charts and graphics and things like that, which are very persuasive to a lot of people. So you go from, say, Miller, well, actually, technically, Darby predates Miller, but you have Darby, you have Miller, but Darby's system of dispensationalism is eventually picked up by a man named C.I. Schofield, who is famous for his Schofield Reference Bible, which becomes the most influential reference Bible or study Bible in the history of English Bibles. It, it outweighs even the Geneva Bible, as far as study notes go, and popularity and influence. And so because so many Schofield reference Bibles are sold and are put in homes, and particularly put into homes at a time when people actually read the Bible at home, dispensationalism becomes a dominant force, particularly infecting groups like the Baptists and the Pentecostals. And so it's really C.I. Schofield that we have to thank for it. And if you want to know more about Schofield and the history of that, check out C.I. Schofield. Oh, Zellen, help me out here. What is it? Um, the Incredible The Incredible, incredible Schofield. Schofield and its book. Yeah, and his book. The Incredible Schofield and his book. It was out of print. It might be back in print now. I don't know. But Incredible Schofield and its book. Uh, Joseph Canfield is the author. And check it out. You'll get an idea behind who exactly was behind the publication of it, who his sponsors were, kind of the political influences behind it, which gives you a very interesting perspective on how theology can be influenced by the political world around it. So it's very interesting to to check that out and if you begin to understand dispensationalism as it develops, then its larger socio-political implications become become much clearer. But again, we'll do an episode focused on completely on this down the road. Guys, do you have anything to add about the rapture or dispensationalism? No,
2: I mean, I, I, I think that one thing that you will notice if you research a little more on your own or listen to, you know, when when Willie can get back to cover this in greater depth is dispensationalism has been extremely good at promoting itself.
0: Yeah, and that's where I mentioned the the charts and the graphics. The um, yeah. early, in the early days, they they're producing posters and charts and things and then it goes on into radio and television very quickly.
2: Right. Right. I think I think it's just been extremely good at publicity. And this is this is something to think about in connection also with Walter A. Meyer is that one of the things that's unique about him, I think, in the history of American Lutheranism, is that he was able to use publicity and modern communication technology effectively in a way that often, you know, people with Orthodox theology seemingly have been unable to. Meanwhile, total novelty positions within the history of Christianity, such as every permutation of uh, rapture doctrine, is able to get out there and to permeate large portions of American Christianity without a second thought. Well, even to the point where... You get people who ask you questions
1: like, you know, are you pre-trib, are you post-trib or whatever, right. with right. the assumption that you are some kind of dispensationalist and that the idea right. that you could be anything else is completely unthinkable. Well, and, and
0: typically, right. when people ask you about signs of the times and the end times, that's the paradigm they're thinking of in, in the context of a rapture typically that comes before the Great Tribulation, as they understand it. A time of great persecution or a time of great evil upon the earth. So it's it's from their perspective an unintentionally loaded question that they're asking you. And yeah, it, it is almost the default eschatological position of most American Christians now, and it's very new in Christian history. Right, right. So yeah, Adam, I think that's a, you know a great point. It the way that the media was able to or they were able to latch onto the media and the media was able to help promote that. And it, it's interesting that they, they catch on in the media, but the media also mocks it nowadays, but it also leads to great book sales for dispensationalist teachers and things like that.
2: <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I mean, they're still, they're still extremely good at it. And if you go into anything that purports to be a Christian bookstore, you know, bricks and mortar, there aren't that many of them, but even, you know, Christian book distributors, any kind of online thing, or, you know, any theology section at a used bookstore, dispensationalism is going to dominate really out of all proportions, certainly to its historic positioning within Christianity. And that's not just true in the United States, because they've been very good at exporting their teaching as well.
0: Right. I mean, you would be hard pressed to find an all millennial perspective represented in your typical big box Christian bookstore. Right, and you have you have notable and famous teachers who don't fall into the radical kookiness like certain other teachers do, who still espouse dispensationalism. Probably the most notable is John MacArthur, who although he's not described as a Baptist, is very much just a Calvinistic Baptist who even preached a sermon called "Why Every Calvinist Should Be a Dispensationalist."
3: Hmm.
0: So it's not all John Hagee and other guys. It's 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 even what we would consider more, what would you say? Level-headed exegetes, (laughs) although we would disagree with them, right? But certainly MacArthur is less sensationalistic and less out there than a John Hagee. Yeah, totally. Uh, You know, just to be, to be fair to Johnny Mac there. Well, all right, guys, we're coming up on the end of this segment. Any, any last words from the (laughs) conclave? It's been a lot of fun. We generally
2: don't do these episodes often enough, in my opinion, because, uh, there's relatively little preparation. I don't know if I'm breaking the fourth wall here. <laughs> uh, but probably even more fun to be had. So, uh please keep sending those questions in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you don't have to wait for us to um solicit you for questions. Anytime right. you have them, send them over. We'll keep them on file and we'll we'll try to tackle them as as we can. I
3: just want to give a shout out to our boy uh David Oppold. F
0: F F for David. Wherever F. wherever you are, David, you're in our thoughts and prayers. No, seriously, David had... He probably
2: um, fell into the same like hole in New Jersey that Aaron has mostly been in. So I mean. That's true.
0: <laughs> so, David, wherever you are, we miss you, buddy. But he'll be back on the next con on the next conclave. All right, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitlyspoken fitly. I'm Woodley Grills here with Zell and Heidi, Adam Kuntz, and Aaron Uphoff. God love you and God bless.